Welcome to the Sisters in Crime Writers Podcast. Everyone has a unique writing journey, so join us for conversations about those journeys from the writers themselves. Julie Henriquez, the Executive Director of Sisters in Crime, and today's guest is the wonderful Leslie Butowitz, former president of Sisters in Crime, and we will be talking about that um, during this conversation. Leslie blends her passion for food, great mysteries, and the North West into two cozy mystery series, the Spice Shop Mysteries set in Seattle's Pike Place Market, and the Food Lovers Village Mysteries set in Northwest Montana. As Alicia Beckman, she writes moody suspense and made her debut with Bitterroot Lake in April 2021. A three-time Agatha Award winner, she is a current board member of Mystery Writers of America and, as I said, a past president of Sisters in Crime. She lives in Northwest Montana. Welcome to the podcast, Leslie. Julie, it's a delight to be here. I am always thrilled to do anything with Sisters in Crime because it's just (laughs) been such an important part of my writing life and I am just so thrilled to see all that the organization has been doing in the last year or more, particularly under your leadership. Oh, well, thank you, Leslie. That is so kind of you to say. Um, It's a wonderful organization, and it's a a pleasure to be serving. But why don't you talk a little bit more about your relationship with Sisters in Crime? How long have you been a member? I don't actually remember when I joined, but I'm going to say it was 1996. Long before I was published, when I was first starting to write uh, mystery, but when I was first starting to write fiction, actually, a friend of mine had seen an article in the newspaper about Sisters in Crime and Mystery Writers of America. And since I lived out in a small town in western Montana uh, on an Indian reservation, although I'm not a tribal member, but that is where I lived at the time, practicing law, uh, I thought it would be a good idea to join an organization since I had no access to a local writing community. And it turned out to be one of the most important professional moves I have ever made. Within just a few months after joining, I saw a call in the newsletter for a group of women who wanted, and they were all women, who wanted to start a chapter for new and unpublished authors in order to share information. Back in those days, the problem we had was getting information. Now, of course, the problem we have is filtering information because there's too much of it. That group, of course, became the Guppies. Uh, And so I am the last original member of the Guppies. And you're probably going to have to throw me out at some point because uh, (laughs) I'm not going to leave it voluntarily. It's just become so important to me as such a nurturing and supportive place, but also a place that provides good, solid information. Uh, Back in those early days, we exchanged articles, you'll laugh, through round robin letters by the mail because there was no internet. Wow. And when the internet and email came around, we quickly adapted to that. 
And that became really the lifeblood of the organization since it is spread out, not just across the US and Canada, but has members in other countries too. I think there are well over 800 members now, which is pretty amazing. Actually, I think it's over a thousand members now. Yeah. So Guppy stands for the Great Unpublished, and it is an amazing uh, online chapter of Sisters in Crime. Uh, Again, for emerging writers, but with resources for people along their journeys, no matter where they are. And it's a very supportive community. It really is. It truly is. is. It truly is. Yeah. So you're one of the founders of the Guppies, Leslie. I don't know that I knew So I don't call myself a founder since the idea wasn't mine, but I am one of the original group that got together. Uh, At that point, the, the national board wasn't entirely sure that a group of unpublished writers could teach each other anything. But what quickly happened was Not so much that we taught each other, but that we learned together. We had access to different resources. And because we were scattered all around the country, we we relied on the mail, but we we sent synopses back and forth. We sent letters describing our challenges. um, And it really became the foundation for, for the present day guppies. And that supportive atmosphere that's always been, it's, it's, I was going to say bedrock, but I guess fish don't have bedrock. (laughs) Well, one of the great things about Sisters in Crime is that it's always been welcoming to uh, writers at any point in their career, whether it's uh, early career, mid career, uh, you know, later career. And, you know, we'll talk about this during today's conversation, but how that can change for people. But to uh, create an online chapter specifically for people who haven't yet been published, but that's their dream is a tremendous uh, boost of confidence, Mm -hmm. I think. I'm glad that the the board stuck with the idea and kept it moving forward. Absolutely. Um, And again, the internet, I can't even imagine what it was like to to be sending synopses around and everything, but it also must have made mail very fun. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Yes, we did our part. Back in those days, of course, we submitted everything to agents and editors by mail, too. So uh, we, yeah. we did our part to support the Postal Service. <laughs> and later, you were the president of Sisters in Crime. That's right. Uh, uh, I served in several volunteer capacities over the years, working with different aspects of the organization. Let's see, we... we um, Sisters, of course, monitors reviews in publications Mm -hmm. around the country, and I was a volunteer with that project. Um, I remember being on one of the goals committees, helping set uh, goals and and, uh, initiatives for the future, and there were a few other tasks, too. And then in 2014, I was asked to serve as vice president. So I jumped onto the board knowing that the next year I would be president and not having served on the board before. So that was that was um, diving into the deep end, but it was great fun. It was indeed. <clears throat> and you were Katrina McPherson's vice yes. president, is that right? Yes. Yeah. And Diane yeah. Valera was mine. Awesome. Awesome. Such a succession. And it's a lot of work 
to be the president of Sisters in Crime um, and to be part of what steers it towards its future um, and, and helps, helps move things along. As your immediate, the immediate past presidents of Sisters in Crime have a legacy project. And can you tell us a little bit about your legacy project? So when I was on the board, I realized we were approaching our 30th anniversary of our founding by Sarah Paretsky and the late, great Margaret Marin, Carolyn Hart, Sue Dunlap, and a number of, of others. And I realized that some of our founding members and early presidents were getting on and that we needed to record our history in some way. Um, I thought that Sisters was part of a, a movement could, that its origins could be traced to a movement in the 70s and 80s of women organizing to, to promote specific projects and specific needs uh, because other organizations did not, uh, did not focus enough on the individual needs of, of women. And I could see that Sisters in Crime had been founded with that purpose and I wanted to, to document that. I have no training as a historian, no training in interviewing, except as a lawyer. Um, and yet I knew it had to be done. And so fortunately, um, as is always the case with sisters, the right people stepped forward to help out. I had a tremendous committee. You were part of it. Susanna Calkins of the Chicago chapter really was crucial to that effort in, in writing that, that history and in, in assembling the questionnaires that we sent to the past presidents and uh, seeing the themes emerge and, and writing it all out. Uh, Susie, by no coincidence, is in fact a historian. And so it was enormously helpful to have her input. And what we put together was a document called Raising Our Voices, Celebrating 30 Years of Sisters in Crime. Um, the past presidents were enormously generous in their time in responding to, to our questions and uh, sharing their perceptions of, of the organization. Uh, when we put it together, I wasn't really thinking of it as a guide for future presidents, but several have told me that they have looked at it that way, and I really appreciate that it that it has served that purpose. You know, a, a, a report, a project like that can be really great, but if it doesn't help people understand some aspect of the organization and help them move forward, um, then, then what's the point of it? I, I wanna also give a shout out here to the legacy project of my my big sister, as I call her, Katrina McPherson, who did the report for change in 2016, which was our look at diversity within our organization and within NISTRI uh, as a larger community. Because as much as I am proud of my own project, I think that her project was one of the most important things that Sisters in Crime has ever done. 
And uh, that project has helped promote Sisters in Crime mission in a way that has just, I think, set the tone for, for work that's been done in the several years since then and work that will be done in the future. So I'm particularly proud of having helped with with the report for change as much as I am with, with the history. I think one of the strengths of Sisters in Crime is that uh, words, uh, we follow words with action. And I, I would agree with you. I think both of these projects are really important uh, because looking back and having it written down instead of anecdotal stories that get passed around and then you lose thread of is tremendously important. But the report for change um, did start a conversation that has led to several actions uh, that Sisters of Crime has taken over the years and, and will continue to take. Uh, it continues to work towards because that's the foundation of why we were started at the beginning yes. is as an advocacy organization, which is our strength. And our needs sure. have changed over the years as our membership has changed, as the publishing world has changed, and the organization has changed in response. Yes, yes, and continues to yes. change. Um, it's exciting. Well, let's talk about you and your writing journey and these conversations. I love to talk to people about their writing life. And then we talk about publishing because they're two separate journeys and we shouldn't conflate them. So as a writer, you mentioned 1996, you started to think, I want to write a book. Um, was that the first time that that idea comes to you or was it the first time that you'd put it into action? When did you sort of claim the space of wanting to be a writer? Well, I always say, because it's true, that I started writing at four on my father's desk, quite literally. I did not yet understand <laughs> the concept of paper. Fortunately, my parents were more amused than anything else, and they kept me well supplied in paper and pencils and pens uh, all my life, up until up until uh, she could no longer go out on her own, my mother was still buying me notepads and pens and paper. Um, <laughs> they were always really supportive. But I don't think any of us realized I would actually end up being a writer. Um, I wanted to. I just didn't think that you actually could. It wasn't a career path that that I had seen, even though uh, in the, the late 70s and early 80s, I worked in a bookstore. There were no book tours. There were no author tours then, particularly if there were any. They were not coming to Billings, Montana. I can tell you that for nothing. Um, but I, so I went to law school because that's what great young women did. And I am glad that I went to law school. It's been an excellent education and it has provided me with uh, the means to make a decent living for all these years and support my other habits, including writing stories, which started one day when I was sitting in the law library of my tiny little law firm and characters just sort of started talking to me. They were not the characters I was supposed to be writing about, um, but I started having uh, uh, ideas of, of a story that I wanted to tell. And I will, will credit um, a couple of things for fiction coming out of me as, as mystery. 
Um, I did a lot of driving. This was in Western Montana where I have, I have lived for the last almost 20 years. And um, we do a lot of driving out here. And I was listening to books on tape and they were in fact on tape then. And I listened to mysteries. Of course I had always read them, but I listened to mysteries by Sue Grafton and Sarah Paretsky and Elizabeth Peters, Ellis Peters and her brother Cadfile Mysteries. But perhaps most importantly, that's when I discovered Tony Hillerman. And I learned by listening to him that anywhere could make a good setting. Any segment of our culture, our society, could be the, the basis for a mystery. His books, of course, are set in the Four Corners area of Arizona and New Mexico with the Hopi and the Navajo tribes. At the time I was living, I was a single woman lawyer living on an Indian reservation in Western Montana. My life was my research. Um, those books are, those manuscripts I should say are not published, but they, they got some attention and um, that got me started. And that got me thinking that maybe I could actually write. I started to connect with a few writers in Missoula, and eventually when I moved up to the small town where I live now, I connected with a, a mixed genre writing group called the Authors of the Flathead and began to, to meet a few people who were serious about their writing. That was right about the same time that I joined Sisters and Mystery Writers of America and began to see that there were actually real people making this happen and decided I wanted to be one of them. Now, were you always driven towards crime fiction? Did you ever think I'm going to write something else? Or, you know, is this because you're a lawyer that you <laughs> looked at crime fiction? Or, uh, you know, tell me about the journey with the, the genre. So it is a natural connection, isn't it, between being a lawyer and, and writing crime fiction. There are a lot of us because we we understand the judicial system and we have some experience both with civil and criminal law. At least I do. Um, a lot of the crime fiction writers I know come from the prosecutorial world. I don't. Most of my career has been in civil litigation, but I've certainly done my share of, of criminal law. And, um, and the two are sometimes connected. Um, I would trace my love of reading mysteries though all the way back to the happy hollisters and the bobsy twins and then on to some of the the better known uh sleuths like nancy drew and the hardy boys and eventually to agatha christie's novels i still remember buying one for two dollars and 95 cents at the dime store in burlington iowa when we were there for bus for my father's business and sitting by the pool and reading it i was probably 11 or 12 and i was just really shocked when i got to the end and found out who roger who killed roger Ackroyd. <laughs> um, and i loved the the settings and the characterization and i always read mystery fiction but really i do think that the reason fiction came out in the form of mystery and crime fiction was because that's what I'd been feeding my brain on all those many, all those many drives, all those miles. Yeah. I, I will confess that like a lot of people, I did read, did write poetry too. And some of it's been published, but um, fiction is where my heart is. 
and Faith um, Snowden did a, a podcast interview, and she talked about the importance of po- uh, poetry in feeding her muse into figuring things out as well. So that's a that's another another track to follow. But no, I will um, say, like, if if I can interrupt and comment on that, yeah. I think that my poetry addiction, uh, since I've been reading it since I was was quite young, has served me in a couple of ways. It teaches you to pay attention to the rhythm of language, to metaphor, to the sounds of the sentences. And that is a crucial element in any kind of writing, but particularly in fiction. And, and you know, I mentioned audiobooks. I think that um, listening to them helped me understand the rhythms of language, too. And that is, of course, increasingly important since audio is a a growing segment of of publishing. Mm -hmm. So I think Faye's right. Poetry is a great training ground for mystery writers. Poetry can be a little bit mysterious in its own way. Absolutely. Um, As you were deciding to become a fiction writer, did you take craft classes you you talked about the guppies but did you how else did you sort of fuel yourself to figure out how to write a book which is no simple feat to figure out so in the beginning I didn't have much access to live uh, classes or opportunities I read a lot of writing books uh, in, in 2000 when I moved up to the Flathead Valley I as I mentioned joined authors of the Flathead and once a month, a uh, man named Dennis Foley, who is a novelist, largely retired now, but had also written for television and the movies quite a bit, taught a class to us, uh, to the group on elements of writing fiction. And he had come from writing television and movies. He wrote for MacGyver and, and a number of other uh, late 70s and 80s series. And so that was my first sort of class. Then um, in 1999, I went to Corte Madera, California, across from San Francisco, to the Book Passage bookstore for a week-long intensive workshop with Elizabeth George. And that changed Mm. my writing life. Uh, It was tremendous. She is a gifted novelist, but also a gifted teacher. She had been a high school teacher before she started publishing and eventually let teaching go, but not completely. She kept teaching these week-long workshops, and that was just absolutely tremendous, tremendous. Um, I did attend a couple of others over the years. I'm a big fan of the breakout novel intensive workshops by Don Moss and Lauren Oberwanger uh, through the free expressions company that Lauren runs. And I've been to two of those. And so I just think that you find education where you can, but it's really important to do, to, to learn by doing, but also by uh, connecting with other writers by reading books on the craft, by studying what you read, and and taking the opportunities you you have. Sisters in Crime chapters provide a lot of really great 
workshop opportunities and and speaker opportunities. But because I didn't belong to an in-person chapter, I didn't have that opportunity much until recent years when Sisters in Crime began doing webinar series. And if there is a bright spot to the uh, last, to the challenges of the last year and a half, um, it is that so much more is available through online mm-hmm. sources. And we are able to, to attend workshops in other parts of the country. We don't even have to put on shoes. <laughs> no, I, I completely agree with you. I think that there's been uh, a flourishing of attendance at some chapter meetings yes. because people were can get there because of the computer. Yeah. So in person's wonderful and important, but um, online is it's not an either or. I think it's a it's a both. And Sisters um, has been folks. a tremendous leader in that in the last actually a couple of years since before the pandemic, actually, starting to offer the monthly webinars and and other opportunities as well. And moving uh, Sync into Great Writing, the uh, workshop that uh, had traditionally been held the day before BoucherCon, moving that online so that others could participate as well. Yeah, no, it's, it's, I think opening those opportunities up to folks, regardless of where they are, is really important. Um, so when you're, what was the best piece of writing advice you've ever gotten? So in your, your questions that you sent to me, you asked, what's the worst and what's, the, what's the best? And I thought about that quite a bit. Um, so I will say that it's been easy. It was easier for me to identify specific pieces of good advice than bad advice, but I do have an answer to that one too. Uh, each book teaches you to write it. Each book will be different. When I wrote the first one, I thought, well, I know how to do this now. And each book gives you its own challenges. Of course, sometimes it's good to go out looking for those challenges as well, because um, you want each book to be better than the one before. And I will quote my friend Keith McCafferty from Bozeman on that. A book a year, each one a little better than the one before. Although for me, it's usually two books a year. Um, Another really important piece of advice, because I couldn't decide which was the best, was that the protagonist has to drive the story. And then another, because I had, because three, uh, I have top three here. Um, And it is something that Dennis Foley, the man I just mentioned, said on dealing with rejection, particularly when you get inconsistent rejections, uh, it tells you that you're in the game. And that's an important thing. So I guess there's a bit of uh, inspiration of craft and of business advice in my top three. They're all excellent. Okay, let's talk a little bit about inconsistent rejection because I, I, that's an important thing for people to hear about and to understand. You know, when you're querying, you're going to an agent or to an editor who has opinions, yes. and and it's a you're looking to create a business relationship with somebody who will support your work and they have tastes that may or may not match yours. Taste. Did you have experiences with I that? certainly did. And taste is actually the word that, that I, I come down to. And th- it's a challenging thing, isn't it? Because we're looking to form a business relationship, as you said, over art. 
and art is so personal and emotional. And so it, it can get very difficult and very complicated uh, inside the writer's mind. Um, I, will tell you, I will tell you a story that illustrates my experience with that. My first three manuscripts, which are unpublished, were a series featuring a single woman lawyer on a small town Indian reservation in Western Montana, just like Mike was my life at the time. And um, she was a really good character. She was appealing to, to agents and, and editors. And my agent of the time sent the manuscript around to editors. And these were when you actually got physical copies of, of uh, rejection letters. I got two in the same envelope. And one said, you know, I really like this character. She is so strong, so appealing. But the plot was kind of predictable. I, I knew what had happened. And the other one in the same envelope from a different editor at a different house said, boy, this author really has a strong grasp of plotting. This story kept me guessing right until the end, but I'm not sure that the main character can carry a series. So they were completely contradictory, one praising what the other had criticized and vice versa. And that tells you, as Dennis Foley told me, you're in the game. It is a matter of taste. On that particular day, that was what that editor felt when she read that story. And uh, that her counterpart felt something different tells you exactly that, that you are doing what you need to do. You are prompting opinions. You are provoking opinions. People are forming a connection with your story. And that's what, what you need to do. Now, it's ultimately, it's a good thing that not every reader loves every book because otherwise we would only need a few books and a few writers. And none of us wants that. <laughs> But it is difficult when you, particularly when you are, are getting started to uh, get your foot in the door. You, you really need to provoke a response with an agent or an editor who connects with the work um, and not everyone will. And that's, that's hard to accept sometimes. You just have to keep telling the stories. And would you classify those first three manuscripts as uh, cozies, or were they traditional, or or what what were what was what would how were what were they, they were traditional? I view a lawyer protagonist as kind of a semi pro, rather than yeah. an amateur sleuth. So your first series was an amateur sleuth. How did you pursue that? journey of writing um, writing cozy series you get to go how did I move from the three unpublished manuscripts to yeah. to the cozies there's actually a fourth manuscript in there too uh, also unpublished highly influenced by reading and studying with Elizabeth George I think there are eight eight point of view characters or six you know in some of hers there are 14 or 15 and some only narrate one scene or two um, and I personally enjoy that. It is not for every reader. My first published book was Books, Crooks, and Counselors, How to Write Accurately About Criminal Law and Courtroom Procedure. And that was published in 2011. And it won the 2011 Agatha Award for Best Nonfiction. And that came about 
because I had joined writers groups by then, authors of Flathead, Sisters in Crime, MWA, and other writers were asking me questions about using the law in their fiction. You know, how does my character get a search warrant? Can this character inherit from this other character? Who is Miranda and why are we always warning her? And so I started <laughs> writing columns for newsletters and eventually collected them into a book. I, they're not collected. They were completely rewritten for the book. I shouldn't say collected at all. I was inspired by Doug Lyle, who many of you will know, who wrote uh, Murder and Mayhem, A Doctor Answers Medical and Forensics Questions for Writers or something like that. And so... I really enjoyed working with writers to help them get the facts about the law right. But as I was doing that, I realized I wasn't through telling my own stories. I actually had kind of pulled back and wasn't wasn't writing for a little while. Um, but I realized I wanted back in. And so I chose The Cozy because I love it. It's great fun, great fun to write. And at the time... Several publishers, including Berkeley, were buying cozies on proposal, even from previously unpublished authors. We sold Berkeley a second series, the, the Spice Shop series. Both series have since moved on uh, to other publishers, but um, that was how I got into the cozy market. And I, I still love the cozies, even though I am also writing suspense now i'm still going to keep writing cozies if the publishers will have me so we're um you wrote your first book on proposal uh you, you know you wrote a book proposal which is letting the publisher know about the premise and characters and the hook for it um and then you wrote your second and so talk about your journey to suspense now. Um, what and why a different name? Like, let's, let's talk about Alicia and her, her, her birth. How did that come about? Sure. So um, I wrote a proposal for what I thought was a traditional mystery series set in a fictional town on a fictional lake in northwestern Montana. And uh, it involved four women who came together at a lakeside lodge that uh, was owned by the family of two of the women, the two sisters. And my premise was, was really a, a traditional mystery with one woman as the sidekicks. And it got some interest from publishers, but ultimately the only offer that came in was from Terry Bischoff at Crooked Lane. And I had worked with Terry uh, on the Food Lovers Village Mysteries at Midnight Inc. And so we knew each other well. And her counterproposal was a, a standalone suspense novel. She thought that the premise for the first book in what I thought was a, a traditional series would actually make a good suspense novel. And so uh, I bit on that we settled on earlier 
And I certainly knew her editorial judgment and expertise and thought that, yeah, I could do that. And I wanted to do that. In fact, I had still have a standalone in circulation, um, one that I had written previously that was a little bit more on the suspense side. And um, it just hasn't found found a home yet. But this one, um, this one happily did. And it became Bitterroot Lake. It didn't even have a title when I first started writing it. Uh, the lake had a different name. And then when it occurred to me what the, there we go. Um, why the pen name? Crooked Lane asked me to use a pen name because they wanted to distinguish between the cozies and the suspense novel. I will say it's not like I've gone from being Jessica Fletcher to Hannibal Lecter. You know, it's not... <laughs> slasher fiction or anything it's it's just a little moodier as you can tell when you see the cover which is all blues and greens and a a um, lodge lit up uh, at the crashing waves of the lake shore below uh and i chose the name alicia beckman because my mother who died not quite three years ago was alice my father often called her alicia the Beckmans were my great-grandparents. Their story is absolute my main character, uh, Sarah, in Bitterroot Lake. But her discovery of the story of her great-grandparents is an important part of this, the novel. And so I kept a picture of mine, the Beckmans, uh, on my desk as I wrote. And the physical image of them uh, is, is my image of what Sarah Carter's great-grandparents looked like, too. You know, we pull from all kinds of weird little corners of our lives to to write these stories, but also to come up with our pen names. Well, and the pen name conversation helps us segue into the publishing conversation. Um, you know, you wrote about proposals and shopping, shopping um, books around and, and having a conversation with Terry, which was part of your... Um, You'd worked with her before, which definitely helps helps with these conversations. Um, what about your publishing journey surprised you the most? So I thought it would be fairly linear. I thought that I would get published, stay published, probably with the same house, that it would just be a matter of increasing sales over time, increasing advances and royalties, and that within a few years, three to five books, I would be able to, to make a living as a writer. Um, I was young enough then to not understand that uh, no career journey is linear. Looking back, I probably should have understood that. But when you are on the outside looking in, you don't. You don't see those things. You don't know them yet. Plus, um, we're optimistic when we start something, seeing only the possibilities, not the obstacles. And that actually, of course, is a good thing because otherwise we wouldn't start uh, some of the projects that that uh, we do, the projects that turn out to be necessary for us as, as individuals as well as for our, our careers. Um, it has not been linear. I have been 
surprised at some of the changes in publishing that have caught me. And I know some of them have caught you too. Uh, the biggest one, of course, was when Berkeley stopped, when Berkeley made a dramatic reduction in its mass market paperbacks as a result of the Penguin Random House merger. Both of my series were not renewed. One went to Midnight Inc., which was great, until a few years later when the parent company of Midnight Inc. decided to pull the plug on that line. Um, the other series went to 7th Street, and 7th Street's parent company sold it to a different parent company, which has had a, a little bit different vision, and that road has been uh, not quite as smooth as I'd anticipated, just because it was a different road for the main reason. Um, and so, you know, publishing is always changing, always, always um, doing new things and and different things and taking different approaches. And that's true of virtually any business. And I, I do credit my long career as a lawyer with helping me to understand business a little and that business is always changing. It's just that when it affects your daily life and your creative work, it is sometimes hard to distinguish those things because uh, so much of our identity gets uh, connected to to the success of the book in terms that we can't control sales and whether it stays on the shelves and all that sort of thing. So, you know, you always just have to keep finding a way. And that's that's the mantra that I tell people who who face an obstacle uh, in their publishing career is you know, find another way. There are all kinds of mm -hmm. other ways, other roads. And the avenues are opening up dramatically these days for publishing paths and things to figure out, but it is a business and, and understanding that and that so much of it's not in your control is, is an important thing for the creative person, for the artist. It really is. And having a community where that can be discussed is, is crucial because of Sisters in Crime and because of Malice Domestic, one of the mystery conventions uh, that um, many of us go to, I knew a lot of other writers who were with those same houses and dealing with some of the same challenges and talking with each other in person and through, through email and other ways uh, has just been really helpful because mm -hmm. you understand it's not personal. It, uh, although sometimes, of course, it is. Maybe you didn't write a write the greatest book in the world, but um, for the most part, it, it's really helpful to have that community to, to process the information and changes and to learn about new opportunities. So you've challenged yourself. You're shopping a book, but you've challenged yourself with this new suspense. Is there another genre that you're interested in? In exploring, um, is there no, any, what's next for you on the, on the writing? Well, I also write short stories. And um, my third Agatha in 2018 was for Best Short Stories, shared with mm -hmm. Tara Laskowski. Uh, I think it was the first tie. And yet there were two ties that year uh, in that category and uh, another one. Um, and so I actually do have a new book 
out in the Food Lovers Village series where my writing career, fiction career started. It's called Carried to the Grave and Other Stories. And it's a collection of five contemporary stories and a historical prequel uh, all set in the village. Right now I am working on the sixth Spice Shop book. It is spread out on my desk. Uh, I have a series proposal and uh, another standalone circulating. What I will work on after I finish Spice number six, I'm not sure. Uh, There are always more stories to tell. There are indeed, and we're grateful that you tell them. Um, Leslie, thank you so much for such a great conversation. And I'm going to put links in the show notes to the reports you talked about in Sisters in Crime. And of course, your other links are in there as well. Um, but thank you for your service to Sisters in Crime. And thank you so much for being on the podcast. Julie, it's great to talk with you. I only wish that we were there in person so that we could share a drink and a hug and uh, uh, keep on chatting. Thank you for all you're doing and for the opportunity to speak with some of our sisters. That's always been my favorite thing about uh, serving the organization is meeting other sisters and brothers and uh, hearing about how sisters has helped them on their journey. Thank you so much. We'll talk soon. Bye. Thank you for being with us today. Sisters in Crime is about community. We were founded to advocate for women crime writers, and we continue that mission by fighting for equity in the crime writing community. Sisters in Crime is an international inclusive organization for all who write and love crime fiction, mystery, thrillers, and suspense. Join us at sistersincrime.org and make sure you subscribe to this podcast.